Our second reading for this morning comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 21, beginning with the fifth verse. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked him, teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And he said, beware that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name and say, I am he. And the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first. But the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls." Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, every once in a while, the lectionary serves up a text that when I look at it, I think to myself, maybe this week is the week that I don't use the lectionary. (laughs) And the text for this morning is certainly one of those texts. It evokes in our minds this great image of the coming apocalypse, the type of apocalyptic Christianity that so many here uh, either reject out of hand or perhaps might have fled from when you were younger. Uh, this week I was talking to a friend of mine and he asked, he said, well, what are you preaching on today? And I told him what the passage was and he went and he, he looked it up and he got back in touch with me. He said, you know, I know this passage really well in the church I grew up in. My parents actually composed a song about this passage. Uh, it's deeply ingrained within my psyche. Uh, again, he grew up in a church that was strongly apocalyptic. So this language was language that was deeply familiar with him or familiar to him. How about all of you? What do you, what do you, what do you make of this text? Is this one that you uh, regularly read in your private devotions? <laughs> one that you recommend to others? You know, when you think about when you, when you think about good evangelism techniques, you can start with this text, right? That would probably bring a lot of people here. Well, the interesting thing about this particular text, uh, from a historical critical perspective, I'll put on my scholar's hat for a moment. Uh, the interesting thing about this text is it's actually far less apocalyptic than it sounds when you read it through. 
Because the reality is, the evangelist Luke was writing this text, according to most scholars, sometime in the mid-80s of the Common Era, the mid-80s AD. And by this point, uh, the temple had actually already been destroyed. The temple was destroyed at AD 70. And what the text is actually about is it's focusing on the temple first and foremost. So again, the text begins on Palm Sunday. Jesus is there in the great temple court of Herod's temple. And people are remarking about how beautiful the temple is. And look at all these great adornments. And Jesus is like, "Ah, actually, as nice as these are, these are going to be destroyed. That turns out to actually have been the case. Jesus was predicting the, the, the fall of the temple. And a lot of scholars think that that particular part of this likely goes back to Jesus, uh, talking about the destruction of the temple. And by the time Luke is writing, the temple had, in fact, been destroyed. Moreover, uh, the temple was destroyed after a four-year-long war against the Romans, against the cream of the Roman army. And so those who were listening to this text for the first time, at least the Lucan version of this text for the first time, would have known nations rising against nations and kingdom rising against kingdom and famines and plagues that were associated with the war and destruction. And in fact, if you read further after this text that we have for this morning, uh, you'll see it actually talks about armies encamping around Jerusalem, things that again actually occurred. And for those who heard this text would have been familiar, would, would have evoked actual memories in their, in their minds. So, yeah, this text, as dark as it might seem, is actually not quite as apocalyptic as it's interpreted by some in churches today. But nevertheless, nevertheless, it still is not one of these texts that makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. I mean, coming persecutions, brother rising against brother, famines, plagues, great portents in heaven. There's that instinct to want to just, like, cut it out. You know, there's that great Jefferson Bible, the Thomas Jefferson Bible, I'm sure you're familiar with. Here's Jefferson, the great deist uh, of our founding fathers, one of the deists of our founding fathers. Here's a, you know, very much imbued with enlightenment rationalism. And so when Thomas Jefferson approached his Bible, he took his scissors out and he intentionally cut out the passages that he thought were no longer relevant in the modern era and created a new Bible. And you can certainly see the the draw of doing that. And I bet if you were to create your own version of the Jefferson Bible, this is a text, even if you don't think it's apocalyptic, it's still a text you'd probably cut out. But my question is, if we do that, if we cut out a text like this, do we end up missing something? Something significant? In the 1950s, uh, the minister of Marble Collegiate Church in New York City, a guy named Norman Vincent Peale, published a very famous book, uh, The Power of Positive Thinking. This was Peel's attempt to take psychology, uh, the sort of cutting-edge psychology of his day, and putting it in a Christian context. And the basic message is, if you have a positive mindset, if you think positively, if you focus on the good things, good things will happen. Uh, Norman Vincent Peel, who happened to have been Donald Trump's minister, apparently when he was a kid, when the Trumps actually went to church, which somewhat skeptical as to how often that happened. But um, in any event, theoretically, if they went to church, they'd go to Peel's church and again, hear this message that is a forerunner of the prosperity gospel that we see today so commonly in churches all across the country and again, uh, all over the world. That, hey, let's not focus on the downsides. Let's not focus on this stuff. Let's cut this out. This doesn't make you happy. Let's focus on the happy stuff, and then you'll find your best life now. You'll get success, happiness, joy. Isn't that what everyone wants? Even in churches, though, that are not prosperity churches, there's still a tremendous pressure 
at least I can speak from a minister perspective, a tremendous pressure to preach an upbeat, positive message, right? You know how many times I've heard people say, when I come on Sunday morning, I want to leave feeling uplifted. I want to feel that. I want to leave feeling in a good mood, you know, happy when I leave. I don't want to hear about sin or darkness or bad things. I want to hear about good things. I want a, a, a little bit of message for the week that I can think a little bit about, but not too much. And... <laughs> And have a big smile on my face so that there's that warm, fuzzy feeling. And especially in the last 60 years, as attendance has declined in mainline churches across the country, the pressures become even greater and greater. Well, maybe if I cut out passages like Luke 21 and only focus on the stuff that people like, then more people will come back. And trust me, preachers all over the country feel this pressure. You don't want to preach about bad things. How can I preach a positive message today? How can I preach something positive? But I always wonder, are we missing something when we do that. Because our life doesn't necessarily line up with that. And if all you have is a positive message of, hey, buck up, things will be good, what happens when things aren't good? Is the message really that relevant at that point? You know, I mean, again, while our context is different than the context of the first century, there's still analogies that you can draw. I mean, think about things in society. Just this week, you read the news that Venice is underwater. One more example of climate change's impacts, which are only going to get worse and worse. I mean, you can line that up with some of the bad things that might be coming. Another thing in our society, um, (laughs) are you familiar with this this, this new popular phrase, okay, boomer? (laughs) Anyone, this this, this came up in a conversation with my mother the other day. My mother and I were, uh, my mother who is a boomer, um, we, were, uh, we were talking and she was, uh, she was lamenting, um, she was lamenting the politics of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to me, um, saying about how this just isn't right, this just isn't right, and uh, on and on. And I, and I said to her, I said, well, mom, I said, uh, you know, a lot, of the, a, lot of the, a lot of the interest behind Warren and Sanders' candidacies come from millennials. Uh, that there's a great degree of frustration. I think you underestimate the amount of anger that's actually there. And I asked if she'd heard of this OK Boomer phrase, and she hadn't. She doesn't hang around with many millennials. And <laughs> I said again that these coming issues where there's this major generational juggernaut that's coming where Social Security and Medicare are going to run out of money, and the people who vote are all boomers, and they're going to keep voting to make sure their benefits are there, and the people who are going to pay for it are these millennials, okay, who've gotten the short end of the stick in terms of healthcare costs and cost of education and, and fewer opportunities opportunities, and they're going to revolt, and they're not going to be happy. And this Elizabeth Warren Sanders thing is just the tip of the iceberg, okay? You're, you're, not, like, you're not like sensing like the anger that's here. You need to read more of this OK Boomer stuff. And then my mother's like, well, can we talk about something else? <laughs> <laughs> but still, there are these coming portents. You know, this stuff is right around the corner. I mean, this is going to be tough times on the horizon. And then what about, uh, what about the individual things people might be going through? I mean, Jesus is not just talking about societal stuff. He's talking about individual stuff for his disciples. Persecutions they'll be going through, which they did go through, uh, and difficult times. I mean, that's, 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 that's a realistic part of our lives. Our, our lives do have grief. We lose out on futures that we hope we're going to have with a potential spouse, a partner, a friend, a job. Maybe there's some sort of injury or illness that comes that, that, that's a major loss, that shakes us to our core. These things are real. Uh, we have real suffering. People have real, people are, suffer with paralyzing anxiety and depression. 
That's real stuff. It's not fake. You know, what do we do with that? You know, people have real persecutions, real tough stuff. To avoid all this altogether seems to me to be, I don't know, missing some of the point. A couple weeks ago, one of my friends um, forwarded me a podcast uh, that, again, a lot of my, it's nice having a lot of very bright, engaged friends because they constantly forward me these different things. And this podcast was by a guy named, or was interviewing a guy named Stephen Hayes uh, about his new book called A Liberated Mind. And I was interested enough in the podcast that I went out and I bought the book. Now, Stephen Hayes is someone who is one of the originators of a type of psychotherapy called uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT. And so I've been intrigued reading through this book and seeing some of the things that Hayes brings up. Hayes is someone who personally struggled with just crippling anxiety in his life. So again, here's this incredibly successful psychologist with this fancy academic appointment, and he had this crippling anxiety, these incredible panic attacks. And out of his wrestling with his own anxiety, he came up with, he helped come up with this new sort of approach to psychology, this acceptance and commitment therapy. And the basics of it are fairly straightforward. What Hayes talks about, he said, in each of our minds, hardwired in our minds, are what he calls the dictator within. We have a certain part of our minds that almost like goes on automatic pilot certain times. I'm sure you found yourself in these situations where you find yourself in a situation, you get triggered, and your mind starts playing these tapes, these cycles that only make your anxiety, your depression, your self-defeating tendencies worse. And maybe you can name some of those times that happens. And, and it, it happens instinctually. You find yourself in these situations, and these tapes just start playing. And even though sometimes you can say, hey, I shouldn't be doing this, you still fall into these traps. Now, the common approach to this in our society is the power of positive thinking approach, which is let's just, take a, let's just try some relaxation techniques, or let's, try, or let's go out and let's go binge watch some TV, or I'll go try and distract myself somehow, or I'll tell myself to be be less anxious, be less anxious, be less anxious. And Hayes is like, that doesn't work. It doesn't work for a variety of reasons that he names. He's like, in fact, the most effective therapy that he's found in his research is, the first thing is, to actually be able to name that what's going on in your head is actually one of these tapes. To say, hey, I'm going into one of these cycles, I need to name that. You're a human being, you have the capacity to sit back and say, that tape, that voice in my head is a separate voice. I don't have to let that rule me. And he said, the second thing about human beings is you can actually take some sort of perspective on the self. Human beings can be self-transcendent. In other words, we can step out of ourselves and actually view ourselves and view our thoughts. That's one thing that humans can do that animals cannot. And as a result of that perspective taking, you can look at what you're doing and actually see how your ego might be wrapped up in it. Maybe you get anxious and you go in these tapes because you think of, oh, I've got to be able to do this for this reason or that reason or that reason. And if you can take a step back, you say, do I really have to do that? Hayes is like, oftentimes, no, you don't. Another part, is this, another part of this whole path that he talks about is acceptance. A certain degree of anxiety, for instance, is just a part of our life. A certain degree of depression, a certain degree of loss. When you lose someone who is close to you, it hurts. And it's going to hurt. And you're not going to be able to avoid the hurt because you love that person. And a certain degree of dealing with that is accepting the fact that you're just going to have to feel that pain. He calls it actually turning towards a dinosaur. He uses that Jurassic Park example. Rather than running from T-Rex, you like turn around to T-Rex. You know? um, and then once you're in that position of acceptance, 
Another thing that he says is it's important to remind yourself of the values that actually motivate you. What are the things that actually bring you joy? What are the values that matter most? And then committing to act on those values. And that this is his sort of framework for having to deal with his own anxiety and something that helps us out when other things come up. And we see actually a surprisingly similar framework in our text for today. Not that Jesus was an early proponent of acceptance and commitment therapy, but a lot of the basics that are in that therapy are actually similar things that are in here. Jesus confronts people who are looking up at the temple. They have this narrative in their head that that everything's going to be well. Look at the temple. This temple's great. God's always going to be here. Everything's fantastic. Oh, Jesus, look at how great this temple is. And Jesus is like, I hate to break the bad news to you, but that's not actually the case. The temple won't always be here. That narrative you have in your head, oh, the temple's going to be great, so all will be well, is actually not true. And you need to step back from that. Another thing he does is he talks about the realism of coming persecutions and pain. These different things are going to happen. Negative things will come up. You as my disciples will be persecuted. And that actually did happen. And again, you look in the book of Acts, you see Stephen, the first martyr. 11 of the 12 of the uh, apostles apparently died a martyr's death, according according to tradition. This persecution was real. And he's like, this is a part of being my disciple. But if you're able to actually accept that that's a part of it and ground yourself in these values, you'll be able to approach it in a way where you can actually save your souls. That's the message he gives to his disciples. This sort of narrative in your head that, oh, because the temple here and all will be well is actually not a narrative that you should have. That bad things are going to happen and that's fine. And that your response is to live in the present and ground yourself in the values that matter. And that's going to get you through. Me personally, I'm one of these people who, um, my, my, my roommate, my, my new roommate is someone who's uh, big into astrology. And I'm not much of an astrology person, but uh, apparently I'm a Virgo. And so <laughs> I, uh, I took out one of these astrology, uh, my, my response to things is whenever I have a question about something, I go buy a book on it. So I, I, I bought a book on astrology and started looking through. And of course, I started reading, uh, I started reading the sections on Virgo. And I, I was like, I feel attacked because it's like, oh, you know, you, you think too much in your head. I'm like, okay. You overly analyze things. I'm like, okay. Uh, you, get, you, you, you get stressed out way too much. I'm like, okay, you're too much of a perfectionist. Okay. And I like slam the book and throw it across the floor. <laughs> um, but this is something, these are things that I struggle with. And particularly for me, uh, one of the things in the course of my ministry career I've struggled with is that I'm not a pleasant person to be with on Saturdays. Um, and I get in my heads on Saturdays and I start going on these various things on Saturdays. You should see me on Saturday. You should see me yesterday before the wedding. I was going berserk and afterwards, shh. And I, it, it actually, it's nice to be able to sit back and say, hey, you know what? This narrative that's going through my head, I don't need to let that I don't need to let that sort of rule my Saturdays. <laughs> um, no, John, you're not the worst preacher ever. No, John, you're not completely <laughs> useless. Yes, things will work out somehow. And that's actually true. And being able to get some perspective on that these last few weeks as I've been reading this through and thinking about this has been really helpful. Um, and to accept the fact, hey, on Saturdays, I'm a preacher. On Saturdays, I'm going to be anxious. That's just, that comes with the territory. I'm sorry. That's just part of the deal. And I just have to learn to sit with that anxiety and not let it dominate my thoughts. And then say, and then remind myself, of how much I actually love this work. And more importantly, how I love all the people that are here. 
And then when I come here and am able to, be able to preach and engage with you, what a, what, what a joy it is. Now, that's not going to eliminate my anxiety on Saturdays. It's hardly persecution that the apostles faced. <laughs> but, but still, it allows me to deal with things that I've been struggling with. And I wonder what it is that, that, that you've been struggling with. What are the things that have been sort of those tapes that have been stressing you out in your mind? Maybe you're someone who, when you open the paper in the morning and you see you, yet one more political thing, you just find yourself getting triggered. And you start running through these tapes about how the country is going in horrible places, and you get all stressed out, and then you think about posting something, and then you don't, and then you get angry, and then you go down these rabbit holes, and you find yourself in this situation where you're driving yourself nuts, and you're like, I just hate this country, I just hate this country, and you start you know, throwing your anger at you know, someone who may or may not be president of the United States, and you like really get into it. If you're one of these people, maybe you need to sit back and say, hey, I need a little separation from this. I need, I need, I need to realize that these tapes are tapes that are running that are not helpful. Is the world great? No. But there's a way to approach this in a way that won't take you down that path. Or if you're someone who's been experiencing a loss or grief in some kind of way, you know, one of the common tapes that starts running in your head when you're experiencing grief is, I can't foresee a future future for myself. I can't imagine a future without so-and-so. And when that tape starts running, it, gets you, it can get you into really dark places. That future that I thought I have is not going to be there anymore. I can't go on. How helpful is it to say, hey, that is a tape that is running in my head. It doesn't have to dominate my thinking. And then to get some kind of perspective and say, you know what? There are a lot of people in this, this, this community who love me. I have to accept the fact that it's going to be painful because I'm grieving. But if I ground myself in values that that matter, that are bigger than me, that actually give me life, I can find new life in the midst of the loss. Maybe that's possible. Jesus' disciples were able to endure great things and spread the message of Jesus in spite of great persecutions, in spite of bad things going on, in spite of less than perfect world. They were able to live into their values and not be overwhelmed by the bad things. Sometimes it's important to talk about the bad things so that we can learn how to deal with them and move forward as Christians and people of love. And I hope you too can read something in this text and get something valuable out of it that can take with you this week.